Well, hello everyone. Welcome to our Bible study today. We're beginning a new, uh, a new topic, a new course of study here. Uh, we are going to begin, as of today, studying the book of Hebrews. Uh, what a wonderful book this is. Uh, I would place it in the top three in terms of most difficult texts in the New Testament. It is a tough one. It, we have to do <clears throat> some deep digging in places with Hebrews. Uh, it's up there, I think, Romans and Revelation are the two others. I consider them tied for first, those three, because they're difficult in their own ways. But Hebrews is a book that if you really want to understand the New Testament, and if you really want to understand the Old Testament, and how they work together, you need the book of Hebrews. Um, it, it, it should come either at the, honestly, if I was arranging the Bible in whatever order I wanted, I'd put Hebrews between the Old and New Testament, or at the very least, right after the Gospels. It's very easy sometimes to read the Bible and see the Old Testament, the old law, God and his people, their inability to obey. And then Jesus shows up, and it's almost like God had him back there behind glass, and he was breaking case of emergency. Well, that's not true at all, and Hebrews shows us why. I think if you truly want to appreciate the Old Testament, you need to understand the New Testament. If you truly want to appreciate the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament. How do they work together? How do they fit with one another? Well, that's what Hebrews is about. That's what this book tells us. It helps us to understand that this plan that God put in place was there all along and that Christ came to fulfill certain roles that are essential uh, when it comes to the nature of God and the nature of man. And we will see the parallels that exist between the Old and New Testament. And this book is written in such a way that it builds a case, it builds an argument for the New Covenant being better. It was written to Jewish Christians to encourage them and to help them understand why this New Covenant was better than what they had come to understand and were living in. Now, it is a bit of a, an interesting book with an interesting history. First of all, we don't have authorship claimed in the book, and there is wide debate about who the author is. Uh, some traditionally think, well, it must be Paul. He wrote a lot of letters, but there's nothing to indicate that Paul wrote this. Uh, there's not even anything in the syntax, in the language, in the writing. It doesn't look like a Paul letter. It doesn't sound like one. I would say the only thing that makes you think Paul is that Paul tends to write like a lawyer, uh, he tends to build a case for whatever point he's trying to make by building a foundation and layer upon layer. He does that in Romans, he does that in Galatians and Ephesians. He builds layer upon layer of argument to make his point. Now the point of this book is that Christ is better. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. So we do see the building of arguments, and that's a very Pauline kind of style. The word usage, the language itself, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit with Paul. In fact, it doesn't seem to fit with a written letter, period. You know, letters look a certain way. They have a certain structure and a certain flow. This doesn't even look like it may have been a letter originally. What's very possible, and this is true of a lot of, uh, of, of New Testament uh, scripture, what's very possible is that it was actually a sermon that someone preached and someone decided to write that down, to write that sermon down and disseminate it amongst the Jewish Christians of the day. We believe that the letter itself <clears throat> was probably written somewhere in the middle part of the first century, 
anywhere from 56 to 62 AD, authorship unknown, and it could be multiple authors in the sense that it might have been someone who preached a sermon and heard a sermon and wrote it down, and maybe it was a, a collection of two or three different ideas and they were put together. We don't really know. People think it could be Barnabas, it could be Phoebe, it could be uh, Apollos, um, or it could be Paul. It may have been something Paul preached that someone else wrote down. We don't know. And that lack of, of clarity on who wrote it really shouldn't cause you any trouble. We have to trust that God got us what we need when we needed it. But it did cause trouble for some early theologians when the Bible was being put together, as we know it, when the canon was being established. Uh, there was a lot of debate about Hebrews. Hebrews and Revelation are two books that almost didn't make it in our Bible. Uh, Martin Luther was one who greatly opposed Hebrews as uh, being put in the Bible because it was unclear where it came from and who wrote it. And also, it was directed toward Jewish Christians, and Martin Luther had some problems with Jews. Uh, let's just be fair about that. He, his, he's got a pretty spotty history when it comes uh, to anti-Semitism, so... Uh, there's some personal things there. But a compromise was reached. It was placed in Scripture, but it was placed at the end. And if you look at the New Testament, you have all of Paul's letters and then Hebrews, and then you have the letters like from James and John and Peter. Um, and, and that was done as kind of a compromise to say, this isn't quite a Paul letter, but we don't know whose it is, so we're putting it in the middle here between the Pauline letters and everybody else's. So Hebrews is an unknown author. We don't even know if it was written as a letter or if it was spoken as a sermon and transcribed. I tend to think that it was the latter, a transcribed sermon of some kind that was probably passed around and shared and spread, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Hebrews is my favorite book in the New Testament. It absolutely is. I don't think I fully appreciated the Bible, the story, the Old Testament, the New Testament, until I began to understand Hebrews. But it is a challenge, and so we have to proceed carefully and unpack this carefully. And we'll do that over the next several weeks. So let's dive in here in the time that we have left and take a look at Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So right away, we dive right in. We don't have an introduction. We don't have so-and-so, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We don't have a greeting here. We don't have an author identified, and we don't have an audience identified, which we typically do in Pauline letters and even in others. This is just going right into making the point, and we're setting the scene. How has God interacted with his people in the past? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that that he spoke to the fathers, he spoke to their forefathers, their ancestors, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, that God spoke to them through the prophets, right? We know that. He spoke to them through prophets, and at many times and in various ways. So he worked through prophets and intermediaries to speak to and make his will known to the people. That was in the past. But in these last days, it says in verse 2, or, or, more, or more recently, okay, think of it that way, but more recently, he has spoken to us, the people of this time and this age, through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So he has the full authority of the Father, right? We know that from the Gospel of John. We know it from John's uh, epistles. 
that Jesus is God, God is Jesus, there is a connection there. And so what is done by one is done by the other. So he appointed him heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Go back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was there in the beginning, right? So through whom he made the world. Verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is God, all right? He is the radiance. He is the result. He is the evidence of God. What we see in Christ represents the nature of God. It's kind of like when, uh, if you've ever been around school children or school-age children or young children, you hear them say something that sounds... Um, sounds like not something that a, someone of that age would come up with. Maybe they even say a bad word or they, or they use a turn of phrase that is more adult. You think, ah, they heard that at home, right? They, it represents something about their environment, something they've picked up. When we look at Christ, what we're seeing is someone who's speaking the words of his father. He, he's telling us things he heard from dad, okay? And so when we, when we, see Jesus, he is a representation of the nature of God. Uh, when he made purification of sins, when he saved us through his death, when he made the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Okay, stop there for a minute. Got to understand angels and Jesus and all, who are all these, these people and what does this mean? Here we see the first inclusion of this word better. That is the theme of Hebrews, that the new law, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. We are living in an improvement, an improved age, an improved time. Okay. So when he accomplished what he set out to accomplish in his death, he went and sat at the right hand of God. He inherited a better position than even the angels. And the angels are right there next to God. They're encircling the throne. They're going here and there to and from the earth. But why is that? Because he's got a better name. He's not just another angel. He is the son. And he says here in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have fathered you. And again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn to the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And regarding the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But regarding the sun, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will, all, and, and all, they will, they all will wear out like a garment, and like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet"? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to provide a service for the sake? of those who will inherit salvation. Now the writer or, or the speaker, uh, the source of these words is making a point here to build a case. Remember, we're building a case and he's gonna start right here. Jesus is better. 
Jesus is superior. And in chapter 1, the theme is he is better than the angels. So we got to start there. Jesus is superior to all else in heaven except for God. So he's better than the angels. Now, how does he show this? How does he prove this point? Well, he does it in a way that's going to be repeated throughout the book. He's going to look back at the words of the Old Testament. He leans heavily on, I say he, he or she, whoever, whoever wrote it, whoever spoke it, the author, uh, leans heavily on Old Testament scripture. A lot of the Psalms speaks very much from the Psalms and from pro certain prophets, but these are words that the reader or the listener who would have been a Jewish Christian would have understood because they were familiar with their scriptures and it would have sounded familiar. So look what he's doing. Again, very similar to some, some things that Paul does a lot, like in Romans. He's taking something they knew that they understood that they would have read or heard, and he is putting a new emphasis on it, a new spin on it, a new idea. Now, when I was growing up, we were taught, you never take scripture out of context. You don't go in and cherry pick a verse to try and make a point, okay, that you got to consider where it comes in scripture and what's before it and what's after it and all that. So we're faced with a conundrum here. Is this author or speaker taking scripture out of context to make a point? Well, that would depend on how we view context and how we understand it. And here's a bit of a personal opinion, but I think the evidence bears this out. When we look at the Old Testament, we see certain things happening, we see certain things said, and certain things written. And in their time and in their moment that they were spoken and that they occurred, they had great meaning. They had great purpose. And later on, as the people would read them and understand them and come to know them, they also had great meaning and great purpose. And then came Jesus, and he changed everything. And some of these authors will take those words and put Jesus into them, and they have another meaning and another purpose. For instance, in the Psalms, David is writing a, a prayer journal. He's speaking to God or talking about his relationship with God. That means something to David in the time. Those who would write, read and, and write them down later would look at them as songs of praise or as prayers to be recited. Um, and they had a meaning for them in that context. And then later, there would be those who would read them like the author of Hebrews and who would say, I see Jesus in those verses. Now, when David wrote it, was he talking about Jesus? No, he was talking about himself and God. When they sang those hymns and they read those prayers, were they talking about Jesus? No, they were talking about themselves and God. It was a new context. When the Hebrew author uses it, he says, look, Jesus is between the lines of all of this. I firmly believe that God, in his wisdom and through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he inspired those who wrote, and I don't mean he dictated to them, but I mean he guided what they wrote. I believe as the Holy Spirit inspired, God had the foresight of knowing what was coming. And I believe that the words David wrote, he understood them to be specific to himself. And I believe that the words that they later sang and recited, they believed to be specific to themselves. But I believe that God and the Holy Spirit, as they inspired those words, knew that Jesus was coming. And one day, this author would use those words to prove to first century Jews who accepted Jesus Christ that he was in fact better than the angels or whatever else we're going to uncover here in the book of Hebrews. Now a little bit of that's my opinion 
and speculation. But I think that's the only way we can reconcile this. Otherwise, the author is just misusing Scripture to make his own point. But I believe that Jesus was always there in the Old Testament. He was always there, always waiting for his time. And God, knowing this, planted clues along the way in the Old Testament Scripture. We look at at, at Moses and the journey that the Israelites took. Do you remember when the serpents came into the camp and bit everyone and they got deathly ill and, and were dying and God said, if you take a serpent and you wrap it around a pole and you hold it up, everyone who looks at it will be healed. Well, do you see any imagery there that might make us think of Jesus? Now, they had no concept that that was coming, but later on we see Jesus lifted up high that whoever looks upon him, calls on his name, and puts their faith in him is going to be saved from the venom of the serpent. Do you see some parallel there? Yeah. Do you think that God, knowing that, used that particular imagery so that his people in that time could be healed, but that later on they would be able to look back at that and go, huh, and make that connection themselves, and that we could look back and make that connection as well. You see, God laid a groundwork in the Old Testament to shape the minds and the hearts of his people to understand certain concepts. Concepts like sin, and righteousness, and sacrifice, and faith, and intercession. All those things we're going to see in Hebrews. All those things he laid the groundwork for in the Old Testament. And though they didn't understand it then, and sometimes we don't understand it now, it makes sense when Jesus enters the picture. Even the nation of Israel, the chosen people, God's kingdom. We have the church today, the chosen people, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, the kingdom. I mean, it's right there. It's right there, and it's beautiful. And I just think that's something, a concept I want you to start thinking about, that we're going to see a lot of Old Testament language brought in to the book of Hebrews always to make a point about Jesus, always using stuff that was written long before the concept of Jesus ever existed in their minds. But what God was doing with the Old Testament and with his people under the old law was shaping their minds and their culture to understand certain concepts about his nature. And once they understood those concepts, Jesus enters the picture and it all becomes They have, uh, you know, uh, they have... Um, uh, uh, sacrifice and they have all these other things and Jesus comes and he fills that role. We're going to see all of that. In this particular chapter, chapter 1, we're talking about angels. Angels were something of interesting for the people, for the Christian or for, for, for Jews in the first century because they worshipped angels. They believed very much in the, the power of angels and they held a special place in their faith and in their culture. And the writer here is saying, wait just a minute, don't get carried away. Yes, they have an important role. They're ministering spirits for those who serve the Lord, but they're not everything. Jesus is above them. That's a big, this is a big deal. We look at that and go, of course he is. Well, they didn't quite, they weren't quite there. They saw angels as kind of next in line. And he's making the point that the angels are not to be worshipped. Jesus is to be worshipped. He is the Son of God. And here's a bunch of Old Testament scripture to prove that that's true. And that's kind of the way we're going to approach Hebrews. That's kind of the way the author's going to approach making his point that Christ is better. The new law is better. The new covenant is better. 
and he's going to take point by point the different aspects of the law, how they represent the different characteristics of God and his nature, and how Jesus fills that role more perfectly and better. So you have to kind of get around your mind around the concept that we're going to be taking some Old Testament scripture here and looking at it in a new context, in the context of Christ. And I believe that that was God, in his wisdom, planting the seeds of understanding. And this is now the ultimate understanding of that Old Testament scripture to do so in light of Christ. It's a beautiful book in that regard. And I think it will be a blessing to you, and I hope you'll continue to study it. We'll take care of chapter two when I see you next time.